everybody, this is Keith Rainwater with the Designated Drummer Podcast, and uh, today I have here with me a very amazing friend that I've known not too long, but he's been around Nashville for a long time, Tommy Harden. How are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Yeah. Uh, it's so great to talk to you, and you, your career is so amazing, and there's something I want to touch on about your career that is it's like a unicorn kind of anomaly type thing that um, you probably know what I'm going to say, but uh, anyway, he is currently playing with Alabama, he's played with Reba. He's, uh, gosh, just like, who was the, before Reba? I did uh, three years with Ricky Skaggs. That's right, Ricky Skaggs. Uh, Larry Gatlin and the Gatlin Brothers. And you went to the University of Skaggs. I went to the uh, Ricky Skaggs College of Knowledge. That's we, it, that's it, College call it. of Knowledge. Yeah. I want to hear more about that because I'm, um, when we were over in Europe, over there doing the tour with the Reba and the Sleep at the Wheel and Ricky Skaggs and all that, I got to talk to him a little bit and he was into photography and all that stuff and I never knew that. Like you said, that he's just such a studied guy, you know, that he's such an amazing. He he uh, he was he's amazing. I, mean, I, I used to I I tell people um, a lot of people compliment, uh, uh, and we'll, we'll, I guess we'll talk about my band later. But uh, the vocals, the the harmonies that we kind of craft. Um, where did you learn to do that? And you know, I did study orchestration and arranging and all that stuff in college, but I uh, but I tell you where I really learned a lot about putting harmonies together was Ricky. Uh, yeah, he's like a harmony guru or something, right? Yeah, he, he just always does, he never does the, the, the moving three-part. The know, typical the, stack. The, the block, know, one, three, yeah. Five, whatever. Yeah, his, you know, the, the parts will jump, you know, over one another and they'll, they'll kind of move around and, and you don't really know until you like you hear him solo it up and you're like oh i didn't realize he went jumped above the melody there and went back below and oh and he, yeah he does a lot of stuff like that and i really learned how to how to really take harmonies and make them not so standard and it really so kinda, he almost like in the harmony he almost jumps <clears throat> from like one part to another part yeah and then he adds to it jumping yeah they they, to they just move they just kind of undulate yeah. and they they go all over the place another thing about ricky that that blew me away uh is his time. Um, I, when I played in the band, I was the only one that could hear the click. So I, we had a little road case about this high, and it had it had two of those ancient uh, Alesis HR16 drum okay, machines. Okay, I know which one. Yeah, I know one, one was a backup <laughs> in case one broke, and I had a foot switch. And so we were sitting there one day um, doing a sound check, and we were waiting on them. There was something not working, so we're all just kind of standing there. And Ricky's just standing there. And all of a sudden, he starts playing "Angel on My Mind." And so I went, "Well, let's see how let's see how close he is." So, let's test him out. So I punched <laughs> "Angel on My Mind" in, and I hit the foot switch right right where on the on beat, the, like right where on he the was. downbeat. Not only was he at the right tempo, he stayed with the click for like 25 bars, and he didn't hear the click. Wow. That's how solid his time was. So not only did he didn't hear the tempo, so he didn't even have any reference to what the tempo was. Yeah. He was on it and yeah. he stayed on it. And he stayed without on it. hearing it. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, and so and and he's he's always been uh we call him Uncle Ricky. He he's just for for my wife and I, uh, we see him occasionally like in the airport and stuff and and he always comes up and gives us a big hug and we talk for a while and talk about God and and you know, he's a Christian, we're Christians and we uh and we just uh 
we just uh, we just have a catch up and we call him Uncle Ricky. So that's, that's awesome. Yeah, I remember seeing uh, footage of him when he was in that. Since we're talking about Ricky, when he was like seven years old on on some bluegrass, black and white, old, probably from the '60s or something, uh, show where he was playing the mandolin and. I guess he was singing. Did he, was he singing? Or I can't remember. But it was just like uh, this little kid, this little bitty kid. It's like, hey, I was like, what's your name, son? Uh, Ricky. <laughs> you know, he played, and he just played that mandolin like he owned, like he invented the yeah. thing. And now he's, honestly, he's like the new Bill Monroe, you know, since Bill passed away. And, right. You know, he'll end up, you know, uh, you know, for as long as we have him. He'll end up being the, ne- the the next, you know, godfather of bluegrass. Wow, I totally believe it. Yeah, that's amazing. And how long did you play with Ricky Skaggs? I was there three years. I, I loved it. Uh, what three years was that? that was uh, it was ninety three through ninety six. Ninety three through ninety six. And then I got off the road. Uh, uh, I was going to go out with Brady Seals, and that that never really materialized. And then I finally just decided I'm going to get off the road and do sessions. So um, I remember. Before I got the Skaggs gig, um, I was hanging out, you know, I was trying to find, I had, I'd been on the road with the Gatlin brothers and I was kind of looking for the next thing. And um, so I was hanging out with, uh, they, there used to be this jam uh, at, uh, the, at the Hall of Fame hotel and it was, uh, it was Moose, Jim Moose Brown, um, uh, uh, Swine was playing bass, Kevin Grant, uh, Danny Muhammad, and so it was all these great, great musicians, and they were they would basically just get up and play covers. And uh, Michael Kennedy was playing uh, drums. Yeah, okay. And um, who played with George Strait for a long George time? George Strait for drummer away, forever. Yeah. And Mike, Mike just knew. Uh, we always called him. This is kind of a little uh, insider thing. We always called him uh, Ekum, which is Mike in re- reverse. Okay, right. But uh, and then when the when the show Hercules came out. We all decided that he looked exactly like Hercules. Yeah, he did kind of have he's real tall and long hair and good looking guy. Yeah, know. so then Ecom turned into Ecules. We called him Ecules. <laughs> wow. So but um Mike knew about he, he was one of those guys that unlike me, I'm the complete antithesis. I have no idea what's going on at any given time. He knew everything. And so we had just found out that we were pregnant with our first child. And uh, I remember going to the uh, the Hall of Fame to to, to hear him play and I think he must he must have been able to tell that I had this deer in the headlights look all right <laughs> he's like what's up and I went you got to help me find a gig we just found out we're expecting our first child and now I'm gonna back up a little bit you have like six kids right I do I have six kids six kids yeah so I, we, we fall under the category of breeders breeders you're breeders yeah so <laughs> right. yeah we have several several friends that all have six kids like uh, Paul Overstreet has six kids oh my gosh so we all we all call ourselves breeders so the thing I was talking about earlier about the anomaly of the, what you are is that now I was told years ago when I first got into the music business and being a drummer and all that, it was a thing. You could be a session drummer and you can be a live, you could play live, but you, it's really, there's no way that the two could work together because when you do studio work, your session, you're a call guy, you have to be in town. And if you're out on the road touring or something like that, and you get a couple of calls and you can't do it and you turn them down, they won't call you anymore. Yeah. So that was the reason I was explained why you either have to be a session guy or you have to be alive, but you can't be both. But you are both. You are absolutely the perfect 50-50 because you played toured the world with these great acts and you're also a session call drummer. 
I I, tr- I try to be. <laughs> There's a lot new guy of new guys in town, so you know how that goes. But uh, but yeah, I'm I'm still managing to to do a few. You know. How do you make that work? And then on top of that, you have six kids. I mean, I, that's just incredibly difficult to that, juggle all that. Yeah, that was that that was. I have to give more credit to my wife uh, because. You know, whenever I was on the road, she was always the one that was uh, uh, lassoing and wrangling six kids oh and God. trying to, you know, we always had uh, e- either a minivan or a large, uh, at one point we had a really large 12-passenger uh, van. Wow. We used to call it the Hardin Family Church of Christ van because it looked like a <laughs> church van. So. And um, You should have just got a bus, you know, like, I mean, a little like a school bus, basically. <laughs> well, oddly enough, now that now that we only have three at home, and we'll soon be two at home because Lily's getting ready to move out. She's 18. Uh, we just bought a motorhome. Oh, that's so, awesome. And I, oh, I love that I thing. know what you're thinking. Like, why didn't we have this thing, <laughs> like Christmas shopping and stuff, to well, if, just if, hang out in? If we would have had it before, we would have probably had to to uh, rip out the interior and put uh, bunk, bunks in there like a tour oh, bus. Oh, right. That's true. Yeah, because yeah. so many, uh, who's going to sleep where kind of thing. Yeah. Um, oh, my God. So, uh, so how did you... Or do you uh, manage, or really for all those years you did session work and all that, you played on so many hit songs and stuff, and toured with these acts. How did you juggle that? Did you just like uh, have somebody that would call you and let you know ahead of time someone was coming up? Or you know, um, I I don't really know. I, the 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 thing is right. What you were saying is, is before uh, you really couldn't do studio and live there were a couple of guys in town that could do it michael rose always managed to do it great and but he would do these massively high profile gigs and that would only make his you know his his mystique in town better i see yeah right so um and and like in the 90s uh they always used to say you know you you need to really focus on one thing you need to do you know laser sharp on that one thing and don't try to do multiple things and then, so when the Reba thing uh, opened up, like like I said, I got had gotten off the road with Skaggs. I, w- I went around and just told every studio, every producer, every songwriter that I knew, I'm doing sessions, and that's all I'm doing. And even then, it took probably two, two and a half years before, before it, but, you know, I'd have these little spurts of momentum. I'd have three sessions one week, and then nothing the next week, and then four the next week, and then two, and, and it would be like, it would be like a like a car trying to start unsteady that it was, was just cold, kind of up and you know? down yeah so but i remember it was a july probably around 98 or so um uh, and i remember all of a sudden that month in july i started doing like triple 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 double one on saturday i mean it was like wow. crazy and it never stopped what year was this that was i don't it was about it took about 2 years really to yeah. break in so i started uh, 96, 97-ish, so probably around 98, 99, something yeah. like that. Summer of 99. Yeah, something like that. And and I just remember it was it was a July. I remember it was a July, and and it it just went from a little bit to it finally uh, caught fire, you know. And I and I and I think I probably went, gosh, 13, 14, 15 years of 500 sessions a year. You know, Golly, wow. I mean, it was like. It was gangbusters. Wow. And the and then the Reba thing, so when, once that kicked in, another couple of years into that, I'm like, okay, this is great. I'm I'm really working, you know, I'm 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 doing what what was my dream, which was to be a session player. And um I remember uh one of my musical mentors uh before I came to Nashville, um, 
told me, he said, ah, you, you probably can't be a session player. And I went, and I, and I took it as a slap in the face. I'm like, well, why? And he said, well, you know, you not only have to be as good as the guys that are there, but you have to be, you have to bring something to the table that they don't have. Um, or otherwise they're just going to call them. Right. And, and, and I think halfway he told me that, uh, to, to splash some reality, but I think, I think halfway he also told me to see if I would actually do it or to see if I would actually had it, had it in me to do it. Yeah. And, um, but uh, so a couple years in, into this, and I'm just going gangbusters. And and I remember it, we were at uh, Malloy Boy Studio, and I was doing a uh, a Tim Rushlow record, and uh, and we're in between songs, and uh, uh, the guy playing piano, um, who had helped me immensely early on in my career, um, he said he hung up the phone. And he goes, "You want to go out with Reba?" And I went, "No." She's married, right? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, on tour, dude. Yeah, yeah. He said, "You want? Do you want to go out?" And I, and I went, "No, I just got off the road. I've just, I just got this thing going. I'm, I'm going 100 miles an hour." And he said, "Yeah, but it's Reba." And I went, "I, I, no, I probably shouldn't, because, and, I, and I'm circling back to what you said earlier. Back then, you couldn't mix it. Yeah." You know, you, you really because if you're out on the road in doing a run like in California or something like that, and someone in Nashville calls and says, "Hey, can you be here tomorrow morning?" Yeah, you have to say no, and then if well, you say and, no too many and, times. And another reason, actually, is back then, a lot of people felt like if you did take a road gig and you were a session player, well, his work must be down. So right, and if his work's down, then it must be down for a reason. And that? I don't yeah. want to call him because right. he's going to be taboo or whatever. <sighs> So, no, that much went into that. Much that, that much thought went into. Oh, that. it's it's you can drive yourself nuts uh, with the thought process of of being a session player. <laughs> the, the worst thing you can do is go on Facebook. Don't ever go on Facebook. Oh God, because <laughs> you see all the sessions that you're not on, and you and you're like, why are you in such a bad mood? Well, I mean, <laughs> I just got off of Facebook. Oh right. So, but anyway, the, so so he said, uh, you want to go out with Reba? And I went, no. He said. Oh come on! And I went no, and he said it's only six weeks. And I went well, I guess I could, lo- I could probably fib my way through six weeks. But no, no, I don't want to do <laughs> Say it. Say that you're just coming off a knee operation, which you just did, by yeah. the way, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I did. And um, so, and then he he told me what what we were gonna make in six weeks, and it was like almost a year's <laughs> income. Oh, and I, you're like, yep, I want to do it. And I was like, I'll call you back. I called my wife and said, honey, I got to do this. I'm sorry. Wow. Um, so how did the whole um, – you didn't have to audition for Reba. They were just like, you want the gig, you got it kind of thing, right? He, it, yeah, this uh, – it was uh, Jimmy Nichols. It was a buddy of mine. He, he put the band together. I know Jimmy Nichols. He's yeah. such a great guy. Yeah, he put the band together. And, I, no, didn't have to audition. And it was just – you know, it was a great band. It was mostly uh, session players. Right. So it was real, you know, real surgical and, and oh, right. yeah. real precise. Make it sound we, like the record. We know. always played with a click. And, yeah. uh, you know, there was never any question. You never had guys rushing or anything like hey, that. Hey, does this remind you of anything? Woo! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I got Jimmy Nichols down. Oh, yeah. yeah. Woo! Yeah, I worked with him the other day. He's, he's, uh, he's a good man. We've, yeah. you know, we still keep in touch. We still play together and uh, – yeah, the last time I played with Jimmy Nichols was uh, we did Phil Vassar and us did a Christmas tour just before COVID hit, just before COVID, and we recorded a song. We wrote and recorded a song, and Jimmy Nichols played keyboard on it. it oh really wow! Cool. Well, you know, you've heard the story about Phil Vassar on the Opry, right? No, huh? it's, uh, 
uh, I think it was Grandpa Jones or something was inter introducing him. And he goes, what was your name again? Phil Vassar. Ladies and gentlemen, Sylvester. <laughs> <laughs> so. Oh, God. Sylvester. Yeah. I got to rib him next time I see Phil about that. Go, yeah, hey, call him Sylvester. Call him Sylvester. He'll love that. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, well, I, and the, so the other thing, so we did that tour in 2001. It was the Girls' Night Out tour. And it was Martina, Sarah Evans, Carolyn Don Johnson, uh, and I can't remember who else. It was it was it was just like a star studded. Wouldn't Jamie O'Neill? Jamie O'Neill. Yeah, that's, that's right. Because I did yeah. a video for her years ago. Oh, she's. I she, think I heard her mentioning something. It was so, right around right after that. It was yeah, two, she's amazing. I, I love Jamie and Rodney, and those guys are just amazing. The uh, uh, so anyway, so the year after that, and the year after that. Reba was not on the road. She was focusing on her TV show. Right. And so we technically hadn't been called back to be her band in, it would have been like 03, 04. But in the meantime, around, it was around 03, this is when the beginnings of Napster and Spotify and. Right. So yeah. the music business started doing this. It started yeah, just started going, going, going down. downhill big time. And guys, I remember guys that, that I know would never have considered a, a road gig that were like screaming a team, you know, yeah. six figure, uh, session guys. I remember uh, more than one of them calling me going, Hey, if that Reba gig ever opens up, let me know. Wow. And so, and then, uh, apparently, uh, there, there was some stuff that happened and, uh, she was going to take out her studio band and that didn't work out. And she called us back and said, hey, do you guys want to go back and do some TV uh, for a new album she had coming out in 03? And we, we went, sure, yeah, we'll go do it. So we went up and did the Today Show and all that. And we just kind of became her band after that. And uh, and that was 14. I did that for 14 years. Did you play on records with Reba, too? Did I, she use yes, that band, I, I that did, iteration? Yes, I did a couple of, uh, yeah, I did a couple. Of, I did one song, I think, that got to got to the high teens or <clears throat> uh called you, you want to be or something i can't remember the na exact name of it but but yeah i we did some we did how some did that work was it that the producer at the time whoever was producing her just said look let's just use your your guys you've got some great your your band is some some hot you know players that was th there were several records that we actually didn't play on um and reba reba just innately trusted her producer and so if she used a producer that didn't use us in his team then, then she just didn't, wouldn't question it, and you know, we we didn't really press the issue or anything. So we we played on some of her stuff, uh, some of her other, you know, Tony Brown's people would play on Tony Brown's stuff, and Buddy st people were playing on Buddy stuff, and um, um, and oddly enough, I just found out. Uh, so we did probably around 2012, I think. Uh, we did this uh, live uh, concert. Uh, we rented this uh, arena for like a week, and they set up, and we did blocking. We did like like a bunch of dry runs with no audience, like like a couple of days worth. Wow. And everything that we did, and we kept recording the songs over and over and over again on Pro Tools, because now by then they were starting to use the Digit Design consoles. Right. And so you could literally just hook a computer up to it and hook a laptop up to multi track it. yeah boom and 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 you literally could multi track the whole thing easy wow. easy peasy so uh they ended up doing this live uh dvd and uh 
dubbing the crowd back in or something like that? Well, they, they, the, the, the third night they did a live show and they had actual cameras with the crowd. Uh, so all the crowd shots were from the, from the live show. And uh, it just sounded fantastic. I mean, because we, we, were, we, were uh, we were just really sharp. I mean, it was all session players. We knew the stuff like – I mean, I could play that show in a coma – yeah, and uh, it's all click tracked and everything. Yeah, so it's, it's kind everything's of a breeze, clicked. Right? And the funny thing is, they're still using the, my same count off, <laughs> and I'm not playing the gig anymore. Oh, oh my gosh! So, but the uh, your DNA lives through Reba's uh, yeah. you know, ear monitors. <laughs> yeah, they can't get rid of me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the uh, uh, but I just found out that they're making that into a, a live live record that's getting ready to come out. Oh, really? So yeah, I'm I'm on her next live well, that's record awesome yeah that's pretty cool yeah that is neat um what was the question now i wanted to go back to your early days in in my podcast we we talk a lot about beginnings and starting and you know how you're what you were thinking when you were a kid and what you thought about starting a, a career in drumming because i'm fascinated with why a person would persevere a, a career in drumming where you know there's so many other avenues you could go to make money, but why why do you stick with this? And and I used to call it uh, uh, persistence borderlining on insanity mm-hmm. because it's just like I am a drummer and that's what I'm going to be and that's just all there is to that you mm-hmm. know and so I'm just going to keep on going even if I have to starve to death. Mm-hmm. So in your early days, how did you? What was your first sort of? Was there an epiphany that said, "This is what I want to do"? You know, I started playing when I was six. Um, uh, my my dad got me a drum kit when I was six years old. I started taking lessons. He said that I beat dents into every pot and pan uh, in the house. Um, and uh, as a kid, uh, I don't know if it was childhood vaccines or what. I, <laughs> I, I was a very ADD kind of child. So I literally, I went from drums to electric guitar to acoustic guitar to piano, to bass, to flute, and then by the time I got out of high school and I decided to focus on drums. Um, and the other thing is that the reason I think was was a, a lot of my uh, upbringing, we went to a church when I was little, uh, went to a bunch of different churches, and then we landed on this church. Uh, it was called Maranatha Church. It was a, it was a non-denominational church and it was full of musicians it was basically hippies from the 70s that never stopped being hippies okay yeah. and um but they all play at the same time on well there were stage? three touring bands out of this church oh my gosh there was one called the bridge there was one called morning star and then there was another one called i can't remember the third one uh anyway but but they literally all three of them had buses oh, they wow. would go and they would do show and these guys were fantastic musicians. I mean, they were. Uh, so the band uh, I studied took drum lessons under um, uh, the Joey Barnes, who was the drummer for Morningstar. Okay. And I studied, you know, he took drum lessons under him forever. And he had this beautiful, big, giant, octoplusy kind of drum kit. Which right, okay, yeah. I used to salivate over it when I would see it. And uh, you know what? Uh, here's another funny story for you. So he. Uh, the guitar player for the bridge, one of the other bands, his son was a drummer. And his son now, uh, I think he might have just quit, but he was the drummer for a band called May, which is very, very popular indie rock band. I mean, they go all over the world. Um, and 
and he claims that I gave him his first drum lesson. Huh. I don't. You don't even have any recollection. I don't. Remember. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so so I used to hang out with these guys, and I literally would follow them around church, you know, and I'd follow Joey, you know, hey, do I, how do I play this? And I'd have my acoustic guitar on, and I go, and, and I was like a Phil Kagey nut. I love Phil Kagey, so I would try to learn these Phil Kagey licks, and I would. You were like I, a sponge. At that I would, point. Yeah, yeah, I would follow these guitar players around. Hey. Show me how to do this, you know, do this crazy lick on the guitar. And they would look. Get out of my, get out of my way, kid. They told me years later that they would look at me and go, who is this kid? (laughs) This little Tommy kid. Yeah, so, but somewhere along the line, uh, drums always seemed to be the predominant instrument, so. You always thought about it in your mind, and you always would. When I was a kid, and it's still to this day, one thing I, people don't know about me is if they've ever asked a question like, what, what's one thing nobody knows about you or what, one thing that, that we could learn is that I always have a drum beat going in my head. There's always mm-hmm. a rhythm. There's always, it's, nev- it's like breathing. Mm-hmm. There's not one minute of the day or even when I go to bed, when I wake up, that there's not some kind of uh, rhythm flying through my head. Yeah, you know, I, I, I believe that's, I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, mine is Mine is a song. Yeah, I'm not have the a song, only one. <laughs> I, I have a song going, or I've got, you know, John Williams, you know, orchestra score or something. Right. I remember several times waking up in the middle of the night and sitting up, and you, and it's going. It's yeah. playing. And it's not something that you turn on and off. It's something that's there, yeah. and it's just a playlist that just goes. So and instead of a ring, it's like music. It's like full, full production it in your brain. Never, it never stops, ever. Um, it's probably going as we speak right now. Right, and, yeah, and it's just kind of further back in the consciousness. And now, uh, you talking about scoring and all that. Is uh, I heard somewhere that in your early days, when you first moved to Nashville, you you had acquired the skill from a previous job of scoring uh, complete orchestras and this kind of stuff. The skill of of taking. Uh, a song that the orchestra is going to play for like a movie or something like that, and you writing out every single instrument and part in in notes. Well, back back when I went to school, I mean, I studied uh, my degrees in music composition, and I studied arranging from uh, a, a, my mentor. That was he would go to London and and he would he would record the London Symphony Orchestra and do the arrangements and stuff, and and he taught me pretty much how to do that. He I was like a sponge around him, and. Um, yeah, it's but back in those days, uh, it was at the very, very beginning of MIDI, so you didn't have you know now you can play it in a computer and then there's there's the notes hit right a there. button yeah. and it goes you know yeah. there it is, and and they don't do uh, handwritten. But when I came to Nashville, uh, the the only person that I knew in Nashville was Eric Darkin, the percussionist, right. the percussionist, and and Eric broke into Nashville copying music, and so. And, and he was, like, killing it by the time I got here. And so he said, let me see if I can get you some work. And, and he literally, three days after I moved here, he got me, like, an $800 copy job. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. You know, it was, wow. it was, it was just— uh, Now, copy job, you mean, like, copying—not copying tapes, copying notes? From, co- copying—well, see, back then, they didn't do it on computer. <clears throat> um, the uh, the uh, arranger would have a— session coming up you know for whoever a movie an artist that you know needed with an orchestra right yeah and so they would score the stuff out on paper longhand and then uh they would need somebody to copy out each individual part and so you literally it's a it's a kind of a dying art but it's you use a a highfalutin calligraphy pen 
and you hold this triangle in your in your hand, and you literally just. What does the triangle do? I've heard you mention that before. The tri- the triangle um, gives you a straight edge, so that when you draw like your a template, sort draw of your stems, you they're they're straight. Oh, I see. So okay, the neater yeah. that you make this, the quicker that the people are going to be able to play it on the first take. So you 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 can't make mistakes. You can't write, you know, and so. I would do that when I first moved to town, and I mean, I would literally get a full orchestra score, you know, twenty something parts, at ten o'clock at night, and they'll say, "I'll see you at ten in the morning." Wow! And and about four o'clock in the morning, I'm pulling all night or drinking and, coffee, <laughs> screaming and cursing. And I'm like, Why am I doing this? I wow. hate this. <laughs> so <laughs> that's crazy, man. But what a skill, man! And I'm sure that has helped you in your studio career, being able to read, being able to sight read, and all that kind of stuff, and charts you know, and all that. <clears throat> Studio studio work, honestly, is you've got to understand the pieces of, of everything that goes into making a song and making it successful. And as a drummer, uh, you really almost need to know what everybody else is doing as well. Right. Uh, and that informs what you play? Exactly. I mean, and I, and I, tell, I tell people uh, one of the best things that I ever did for my studio drumming was to become a songwriter. So my wife and I uh, are songwriters, and we've written <clears throat> hundreds and hundreds of songs. And uh, we got two songs on the Reba Duets record uh, that we wrote with Don Rollins. And that's a craft that you learn just like playing an instrument, writing songs. You don't just start out a great songwriter. No, you, you, it, you have to develop that. You really start out. I, I, I'll tell you how I started out. I started out as a, as a really good melody writer and, and a barely mediocre lyricist. And just in the process of writing, 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 co-writing mostly, you know, you co-write with you know Craig Wiseman and Michael Delaney, and and they're sort of teaching you and Brett James, a little all bit these, as yeah, you're going. Yeah, every time you write with somebody, you're like, oh, that's how you do that, and you take that little trick and you put it in your bag of tricks, and and you're really trying to, you're really just trying to create stuff, not recreate stuff. That's yeah, that's right. the big biggest problem that I have with the music music industry right now is they're not creating, they're recreating yeah, over right. and over and over again. It's like a cookie-cutter formula kind it's, of thing. It's that. ridiculous. And and every now and then somebody does create and pops out, and then they go away. And it's like, you know. Yeah. But, but what you're trying to do, especially lyric-wise, is to say something in a way that's never been said before. So you really got to avoid cliches, man. If, you, yeah. if, if somebody throws out, you know, a you know, a, a rhyme of love and above or something like that. Yeah. You're like, no, 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 no get no. rid of that. That's crap. It doesn't have to rhyme. You know, like but you have to, you have to be <laughs> diplomatic about it. You yeah. know, so as a, as a songwriter, you, you literally, uh, you can't like shoot somebody's idea out of the sky and go, Pew, there, it's dead. Yeah. That was a horrible idea. You can just idea. kindly <laughs> say, that might be a little cliche. Let's try this, right? Well, you, you, I tell you what works really good is, you know, we could do that. What if you did, and then you present a better idea, which if it's even a mediocre idea, it's a better idea than, you yeah. know. So you, what you try to do is you is deflect, I guess. Yeah. And, wow. uh, but, uh, but songwriting, uh, because we became songwriters and I had a studio at home, we started demoing all our songs at the house. And when you're a songwriter and you do a new demo, you listen to it 500 times. And so... Right around 480, you start to go, why in God's name did I play that fill there? That's too much. It's yeah. not working. It's not serving the song. Right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's serving me as the drummer. I'm trying to make, do like a NAMM show moment or something here, and it's like, 
you know, it, it doesn't build the song up. It doesn't make the song. It doesn't help sell the song. It basically helps sell me as a flashy drummer. And it's, yeah. and and you know, and so after a while, you really get to where y- y- you realize that you are on a team, and if the songwriter wins, if the artist wins, if the producer wins, you win. Yeah. And so, what you do is is you you really have to kind of put yourself down and bring the whole team up. And so if, uh, if it's just a pocket for the whole song and then what you got one little spot there at the end, you know, throw something in there, kind of smack them upside the head and then, yeah. and then just to let them know you, you know what you're doing and yeah. you're a good player, but you don't yeah. want to hit them. Yeah. Constantly I've, with it. I've talked about Jimmy Lee Slowis. He does that every song. He will play just the fattest, deepest pocket, um, and 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 he always he's just playing the bass. He never gets in the way. And about one time, closer towards the end of the song, when you've heard the hook already and you know what the hook is, he'll you know he'll, he'll say, okay, let me let me just let me just give me give me a second. Yeah, he'll <laughs> he he'll throw one thing in there. <laughs> yeah. And so if you if you if you leave it at that, then then you you take a little moment and you add some excitement to the song but you don't distract from the song and you don't take over. Yeah. You give them a little bit and back off, right? Is that, yeah. Is that and, what you say? Yeah, and uh, honestly, uh, one of my favorite drummers growing up was Hal Blaine. Um, oh, my gosh. Hal Blaine, uh, God, I mean, just listen to him on... Uh, I was just listening the other day. We were at the studio, and I was I had been listening to Tin Man by America. Um, yeah. Actually, uh, I'll tell you where I heard it. Uh, America opened up for Alabama... Um, the band that I'm currently playing with now, and I, I wait, who? Alla, Alla, who? Alabama. Alabama. It's a, it's a I little. I think I've sp- heard of them. Small band from Fort Payne. <laughs> Maybe you've heard of them. the. Uh, but uh, I went back and listened to Tin Man again. Who? And Hal Blaine had played on. Right. The pocket on that is insane. I mean, it's it's perfect. It's it's just relaxed enough. And it's just driving enough, and it, and it's just this kind of bossy kind of groove. And so I was in the studio working with uh, Allison Presswood, and I and I pulled my phone up and I hit play, and I went, I said, was this Joe Osborne or Carol Kay? And she listened to about three notes, and she said Joe Osborne. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, how do you know yeah. that? And she goes, oh, I've studied both of them in extensively, and uh, that was Joe Osborne. You could totally tell. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's knowing the nuance of of everything that has been recorded. Just the the talent of being able to know those nuances. That's amazing. I, I like the little fill that he plays in uh, when he says Oz never did give nothing to, and he does that fill. Yeah, and then it goes right into that buck do buck do. Oh, it's 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 so amazing. It's just a a feverish pocket. I mean, it's 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 crazy. And I never did know that until I saw the. You know the uh, that whole documentary about the um, about the the wrecking crew the, the wrecking crew documentary mm-hmm. that Hal Blaine had played on so much stuff he was kind of like the unsung mystery player on well, all that stuff that you thought was the Carpenters or well I whatever. heard I heard John Robinson say one day that that uh, one day he found out that his top eight favorite drummers were all Hal Blaine I know yeah I think that was on the documentary wasn't it yeah <laughs> yeah uh, seven of my or something like that seven yeah. of, eight of my favorite drummers were Hal Blaine. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, like I, w- growing up listening to the Carpenters, I really thought that was Karen Carpenter playing because I knew she played drums and all that. But then to learn that it wasn't her, it was Hal Blaine. Those are some of the best ballad Tom Phil's 
Oh yeah, ever, right. Ever. That was when he went to like the concert toms, mm-hmm. and he was the one that really kind of brought the concert toms into the pop culture, right? His sound was so coveted that he had four or five drum kits in Cartage, and if he was booked and a producer couldn't get him, they would hire his drums and bring in a session drummer to play his drums. But the only condition was he had to sign the time card. Ah, uh, okay. So he literally would sign five time cards a day. Oh my gosh! And wow. Because his drums sounded so good. Wow, I didn't I didn't know that, but I did hear a story that he was about to play with. Um, I want to say it was uh, the big swooner guy, the um, uh, Sinatra. He was about yep. to play with Frank Sinatra, and he was so scared because he said that. Uh, uh, that he had heard that Frank Sinatra only liked to do one take. He didn't like to go back and do it again. And so Hal was so afraid. You heard this story? He was so afraid that there would be a squeak or a rattle or a, uh, some sound from his drums that, that would end up in the recording. <clears throat> they would have to say, well, we got to do it again because there was a lot of noise. So he sent his drum kit to a, an engineer guy who took the whole thing apart and put rubber grommets on everything that was metal touching metal, like where the lugs go in and all that stuff. And he made his kit basically noise proof just because he was so scared that he goes, I don't want to be the reason Frank Sinatra has to do another take when, and, and piss him off, you know? Wow. And, uh, and when I see, you know, you're, you're a Yamaha guy. And when I, I was, one time I was taking apart some Yamaha, my Yamaha kit, and I took the lugs off and I see these little rubber grommets in there and stuff like that. And I realized why a Yamaha recording series is called recording series. And I wonder if that was, wasn't born out of like Hal Blaine, his whole, that whole experience with um, having his drums completely gone through and noise proofed. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. Uh... I've been a Yamaha player for since 01, uh, and uh, I'll tell you how I found out about Yamaha. Um, I got called to sub for Paul Lyme on his kit. Uh, he had a 10 and the 2, got a 2 o'clock master in the afternoon, so he just needed somebody to come in and play. And, and I had been with Pearl, uh, and Pearl's making really good stuff now, but uh, I, I had a Pearl kit that I really loved, the Toms, but I, I was always struggling trying to get my kick to sound good in the studio kind of oh there's yeah. a train we're at the band cave so you're going to hear a train come by in a minute we're right next to the train tracks so there's our horn section there you go now what are those notes what would what would, what would ricky skaggs uh, do with those anyway. i think that's a c chord <laughs> the uh oh my gosh we can we can so yeah um we're here at the band cave and you never know what kind of noises you're going to hear here but uh anyway uh so we were talking a little bit about um Yamaha and how you got started playing Yamaha. Yeah, I was, I was telling you, so I, I sat down behind Paul Lyme's kit, and he had a 24-inch maple kick drum, and I and I just literally just hit it one time, and it went, and I was like, Yamaha. Wow. <laughs> Ding, light they bulb. sing, they, you know. And so I called, uh, I ended up calling, and that was the year I got the, the, the did the first Reba thing, and so I thought, well, I'm, I'm doing the Reba thing. This is probably a good time to, you know, make a change. It's been a while. It's been like nine years or so for uh, with Pearl, so uh, so I called up Joe Testa and took about three phone calls, but he finally called me back. And so, oh, that's cool. And you got a Yamaha, good Yamaha kit. Yeah. Now I had heard somewhere that you and I feel the same way about the whole uh, one tom up and two toms down, that old-fashioned Ringo. Which there's nothing wrong with that setup, but for me personally, I changed back to the two toms up front and the one down there because i just i can do fills better i don't have that gap in between yeah and i think didn't you go through kind of the same thing you wanted the traditional setup yeah i I had uh, i think i told the story about uh 
uh, it was around 2010, and I had just taken my son to see uh, a Rush. Oh, right, right. And uh, uh, we have the our, our one of our monitor guys uh, in Reba also toured with Rush, so he got us in the meet greet and everything. Wow. And then they walk in, and I and I almost started crying because I realized that Neil doesn't do meet and greets. Oh and no! And I had forgotten. I remember hearing oh, yeah. that, but but I had I I had watched him on his kit and i was like why have we gotten away from this this is like yeah. exciting drums and we've gotten you know it's it's this ubiquitous it's like somebody sent a memo out to all the drummers saying okay yeah. if you're going to tour in nashville you've got to have one tom, tom on a snare yeah. stand and one floor tom and maybe a second floor tom is allowable and that's all you can do and which is funny because that's what i use in uh, alabama but but it's like but so back then, I was like, we were getting ready to do this tour, and there was uh, uh, a bunch of young hotshot drummers were getting ready to come out. So I called my Yamaha guy, and I said, okay, I never ask for anything. I'm just one of those really low-profile guys. And I said, but I just saw Rush. I want a big kit. I want a big kit for this next tour. I don't care if it's new. I don't care if it's used. Uh, I want an 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18 Tom. And I, I want a 24 Was oh, this for Reba before you went out yeah. with Reba? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. The, 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 this was in 2010. So this was um, at the height of the, of the tiny kit thing. Yeah. Right? yeah, yeah. You know? And so, and I said, I want a 24 inch kick. I'd like Birch if you can find it. And immediately you could start hearing him, uh, you know, uh, oh, yeah. well, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, wriggle, wriggle, <laughs> him haw, him haw. So pause, uncomfortable pauses. <laughs> and, and honestly, you know, I, I really wanted to see if they would come through and they did, you know, they did. So he, but he called me in about two weeks and he said, you won't believe this, but, uh, I just had a kit turned in. Uh, it's exactly what you described. Same sizes. It's birch. Um, the artist even sent the cases back. Wow. And these cases that you can't get in America. Yeah. He, and he said, if you don't mind uh, playing a kit that Billy Cobham owned. And I went, <laughs> what? What? Billy Cobham? Oh, I, I guess it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, as a kid, I can't tell you how many nights I would fall asleep laying in bed, uh, either listening to uh, the Spectrum vinyl or – one right, of the other yeah. ones on eight track with my cost what headphones. a monster player i mean I, billy cobham he could do a fill across the toms so fast that it's like one note yeah you know i mean it's like yeah and that's was, like eight toms or something it's incredible he was he was amazing and and uh, a couple of years later so, uh somebody uh i put a video blog about it on uh you know the socials and stuff uh I had somebody reach out to me and say, uh, hey, there's a there's a picture of Billy on the cover of, it's like one of the, not modern drummer, but one of the, you know, more boutique-y, I guess, uh, drum mags. And he said, and that's that's the kid. He's he's posing in front of your kid. And I went, oh, would man. you send that to me, please? That is awesome. Did you so, have it framed and all that? Yeah, he, he sent it to me, so... That's um, did you feel some energy from when you first got that kit and set it up and started well, playing with it? Well, I got to tell you, okay, so at the time, my okay, my youngest son is my highest energy kid. Right. He is, uh, and he's also, of all my, all my kids are musical, all, and we've never pushed them into music. They, they all sing, they all play. Um, my 25-year-old is an incredible drummer. 
he could easily be a professional, you know, touring drummer. Uh, but my youngest just spoke music. Yeah. I mean, when he was three, um, he's 14 now. He's when he was three, his he had a little a little one of his little iPod Nanos, uh-huh. and his his playlist was like Circus Survive, Ricky Skaggs, Cigaros. It was like all this heady music. Right. You know, I mean, this is not like, you know, the, the, this is not like Pizza Bikes. This is like yeah. filet mignon of yeah, music right. I mean, that, that he's listening to. And so um, I, I had, uh, when I finally got off the road with Reba, it was, uh, it was uh, 2015. Um, I, so I pulled my kit, uh, I brought my kit home, and I finally had, um, oh, and I forgot to tell you this. So, so they sent me six toms and a kick. Well, about three years later, uh, the new guy had come in, Greg Crane, and so Greg calls me and goes, "Hey, dude, I found the rest of this kit. Do you want it?" <laughs> oh, at Yamaha. Oh, okay, right. Well, I mean, the obviously, rest of the kit. What was well, the rest of the kit? Billy Cobham had three kick drums and like ten toms. <sighs> How do you play three kick drums? Did he have them as backup, or did he actually play them? I don't know, but he had uh, <laughs> a, another twenty-four and a twenty. Oh my god! And then uh, wow. a thirteen and a fifteen. So I had eight, ten, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, eighteen toms. Wow! And so w- when I was at home uh, for about a month, I had this thing set up in one configuration, wow. and it was so huge that I that I couldn't even reach. God, just side buying of it. heads for that thing would just be like you have to take out a bank loan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I've got a picture of my my son. I think he was seven or eight and he is just jumping on this thing and wailing i mean i got pictures of him where he's just he looks like you know like like he should be playing for slipknot or something like that he's 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 channeling billy cobham (laughs) his energy from these getting them it has to be yeah wow that is awesome so um i remember when we were over in europe playing uh that tour with reba and asleep at the wheel and ricky skaggs and all that what a great time didn't you hurt your arm or something on that did you oh you know what your arm on a table or something i fell into a coffee table a glass glass i remember that because you had a big like bandage on your hand like what'd you do yeah i cut i cut the the palm and um and as a drummer, you're like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. And I, I had, uh, I had, uh, so yeah, I'd cut myself over there. And then uh, they sent me to the emergency room, uh, stitched everything up. And uh, there was another time when we were, we were getting ready to go in Vegas. And underneath the stage, underneath the stage, the tallest part of the stage was what they called the garage. Okay, right. And it was where all the guitar techs were. And so we're getting ready to go out. It's literally like about a minute to, to where we go out. And uh, Jerry McPherson was playing. And Jerry's got this really goofy dance that he does where he throws his front leg out and throws his back leg back. And On he, stage, like yeah, during the he, show? Yeah, and he's like six foot tall anyway. So he's <laughs> skinny and got these crazy long legs. So, so he's doing the, his Jerry McPherson goofy dance. And his pack hits the floor. And uh, the back of it comes off. And and disappears and so we're like oh crap you know we're getting ready to go on so i'm pretty sure i saw it go underneath my road trunk and so my road trunk is over here and the the lid is up and so i went oh it's under here so i i pushed it and it pushed the lid into the curtain and then all of a sudden bam the the lid this heavy 
road trunk lid comes down right on the back of my hand. Oh my god! And it's got the channel, the metal channel in there yeah. to keep the water oh, yeah. out and stuff. Yeah. And everybody oh. looked at me like, and I pl- I remember playing that whole. Uh, was it your right or left hand? It was my right hand. Oh my god! Yeah, Jeez. and uh, it was uh, the the whole time in between songs. Uh, Keith, my drum tech, would come up with ice, and we would ice it. Oh. She'd talk for 45 seconds, and I'd ice my hand and then play. <laughs> I can understand if it was of your left hand, because I could probably do a whole gig with just my right hand yeah. if I had to. But left, if my right hand was compromised, I, that's, that's a tough one. Yeah, well, you just mentioned my knee surgery. That Luckily, that was my left foot. So yeah. that's, that's the, least, oh, okay. the least worked limb of a, right, of yeah. a drummer. You could just close the hi-hat and yeah, just, just let play, it rest. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Um, man, it's been so good talking to you. I know you got to go, uh, but um, what's what's coming up for you? Are you still with Alabama? Still out there doing that? Uh, yes. Uh, How's Randy doing? Randy's doing great. Uh, Teddy's doing great. Uh, J- Jeff is. Uh, say a prayer for Jeff. Jeff is. Uh, you know, he's got Parkinson's. All right. And so he he actually came. We had a show a, a couple of weeks ago, and my band got to open up for Alabama. Right. Uh, my band is called Lost Hollow. Lost Hollow. You and your wife. That's you and your wife's band? Right? Yeah. Yeah. And my daughter sings with us as well. She sings the third harmony. Now, what uh, is that? What's the music like? What, how would you describe your band? Um, we describe it as uh, the love child of the Civil Wars and Fleetwood Mac. Oh, okay. Wow. That's yeah, interesting. That was a fan quote. That was a fan quote. Wow. And, and you I, have records and a record deal and all we, that we stuff, have, right? We don't have a record deal. We have four records. We're getting ready to start on record number five. Uh, we've got about three or four songs recorded, um, so we are getting ready to uh, to, to work on that, uh, hopefully this spring. So, and it's a stupid question, do the drums sound any good on these records? The drums <laughs> sound amazing. <laughs> you know, uh, the the problem is, though, uh, when we play, I'm out front with a You're a singer. Yeah, you're a singer, guitar. too. I'm not a drummer. I keep forgetting that, that you're a singer. So I, I keep, heard a I story keep having that, all these drummers <laughs> show up and... and right. Uh, and they're all... I think they're, they're like, scared oh, that's to, Tommy Harden. Oh, my God. What am, I, what am I going to play? <laughs> that you... I heard a story that you uh, filled in for Randy Owen a couple of times. Well, I mean, filled in vocally uh, when his voice was having some problems or something like that. You sang... Got to sing... What song did you sing? Uh, I sang my favorite... Alabama song, which is Take Me Down. Take Me Down. Oh, I love that song. Oh, God. When that first came out, I was just out of high school. Yeah. And, and that's when the drums in country were starting to come out a little more in your face. Yeah. You know, that, that kick drum and that, that real, you know. Who played on that? Take Me Down. I, you know, I don't know. Eddie I Barris, know. maybe? It could have been Larry London. Uh, I'll have to look at that. Um, uh, I know Craig Cramp. Played on a lot of their stuff. Uh, Teddy loved Craig Cramp. Yeah, and uh, Craig Cramp, you know, you know, uh, played on Betty Davis Eyes and right. Yeah. You know. Well, did Alabama record a lot of stuff in Muscle Shoals or was it? They recorded some stuff in Muscle uh, Shoals. Okay. Yeah, I was just there Monday. So yeah, Muscle Shoals. Yeah. yeah. Oh, when I was in Canyon, the group Canyon. Uh, when you first came to Nashville in '91, I was still in Canyon. I didn't leave until '92. So uh, we recorded all our albums in Muscle Shoals. Yeah, Muscle Shoals sound. It's uh, it's just it's just got a vibe to it. The, the place is, is I think it's like a spiritual place or something. It really is. There's yeah. a there is definitely an energy there. Yeah. In any studio in Muscle Shoals, I would say, there's just something about that. Yeah, I heard Bernard uh, talk to Jimmy Nutt, uh, a friend of mine who owns the Nut House down there in Florence. And uh, Bernard Purdy just played there last week. Oh man! Yeah, the Bernard, the Purdy Shuffle. Oh yeah! Wow, I, I love the Purdy Shuffle. Uh, anyway, so I was telling you Tallahassee. So uh, 
Lost Hollow got to open up. And, and by the way, check us out. Uh, we're on Spotify. Uh, and, and if you want to find us, our website is LostHollowBand.com. LostHollowBand.com. I'm yeah. definitely going to buy, I'm going to buy your albums. Yeah, I was going to. I like to support artists that way. I was going to br- bring a couple of albums and I'd ask my wife on the way here. I said, is there any albums in the car? She said, no. I oh, like, no. Crap. We've sold them all. They're all <laughs> sold out. That's awesome. I can't wait to hear it. And um, how many albums do you guys have? We, we have four. Four albums? Yeah, we have three uh, we, and a Christmas record. And that's over the span of, uh, when did you start that band? We started in 2012. Um, and honestly, right now, our biggest thing, we're looking for a booking agent. We, we really awesome. want a booking agent. Um, and so we're, we're talking to some different people. What's the goal? Is it touring or is it going to be local? kind of? No, we, we'd like to, you know, hey, we got the motorhome now. So we, oh, yeah, we, you we can go on the road. We can go, go, go do stuff. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're, we, are, uh, we want to go out and do more shows. You know, we're hoping we, we get to do more shows with Alabama, too. So. Yeah, well, I'm going to look and see what your schedule is, if there's any shows here in Nashville, and I'm definitely going to come out and listen. Yeah, we have one. Uh, we had, uh, the funny thing is we, had, uh, we've got, we go to the U.K. quite a bit. And, and tour over there. I got a Facebook message from a girl, and she said, I'm, I'm writing you from Scotland, and my father is making a trip to Nashville. And uh, he said, uh, March 13th through 16th, and he desperately wants to see Lost Hollow. So we booked a show March 16th. Just for just for him? Just for him. That yeah. is so great. Yeah, so we'll be at uh, Puckett's and Leaper's Fork. on uh, Puckett's and Leaper's Fork, March when? March 16th. 16th. March, March 16th. Yeah. I'm going to look at our schedule and... See that, uh, see that I can definitely make it out there. That is awesome. Well, man, it has been so great talking to you. I have been, wanted to have you on my podcast forever because you are, to me, you're like an anomaly. I mean, the whole like playing live and playing in the studio and like, how do you do it? And then I found out you had six kids. How do you juggle all that? It's, it's amazing. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's a controlled insanity. So that, yeah, It's true. <laughs> that is very true. And a great wife, obviously, yeah. to the, the, your support team and Great kids, I'm sure, help each other out. Yeah, the kids are fantastic. Um, what advice would you have, you say, for um, young people coming up, young drummers, let's say, uh, in this world today? What would, with recording and with respect to playing live, what is your best advice for a young drummer coming up? Um, learn as much as you can. Um, don't, Especially for recording drummers, a lot of recording drummers, I think, think, well, if I mess it up, they can fix it in Pro Tools. You, you don't want to think like that. You, you really want to you want to play in such a way that they don't have to touch you. Um, but learn as much as you can. Learn as many different styles as you can, even as, if it's out of your comfort zone. Um, I can't tell you how many times I would go to a session, uh, you know, and, and they would say, okay, the first song is Rolling Stones. The second song is a jazz waltz. The third song is Tom Petty. The fourth song was Eagles or whatever. Yeah. And the, this is re- with respect to feel, like the, yeah. the feel of the song. Feel like and the, sound. I mean, yeah, you, right. you want to be able to pull up a, a snare drum that uh, that sounds like the Eagles or that sounds like Tom Petty or it sounds, you know, and uh, you want to be able to play with brushes. You want to be able to do all the stuff. So really study hard. And, and the, thing, the thing is now in the age of YouTube and Instagram and you know, TikTok and all that. There, there's so much knowledge out there. Uh, the, the thing that I would suggest is focus, focus, focus. Uh, stay off your phone because uh, the phone will suck up hours of your day for no reason. And study because the thing is, uh, I, I tell drummers this. This is the 85% rule, and I tell my daughters this too. My 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 kids. Um, 
85, and this goes not, not just in drumming, but in all fields. This is like a, a rule of thumb. 85% of the people doing what you do are inept to barely adequate. 85% of the, and, and, and in terms of Nashville, so figure 85% you don't have to worry about because they're not, you know, they haven't really worked hard. They're not. Yeah. So you got 15% left of, of that 15% of the people that are, are good, 10% of those will probably leave because Nashville is a long-term town. We, right. we talked about this earlier. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a 10-year town. I mean, you can't just come here and sit on your butt and expect, you know, to get a gig in, in a few months. Um, oddly enough, I did, <laughs> but it was a crazy, it was a crazy story and it was an anomaly and I would never tell people that they could do that. The thing with Eddie Bears where he yeah, recommended, like the, Eddie Bears Gatlin, recommended me. The Gatlin brother. Yeah. Wow, that just four great. months. I, I, wow. I still look back at that thinking that's the weirdest thing that, you know, it was a total God thing. Um, but the five, the 5% left over, that's your competition. Right. And so of of that five percent, they're going to stick around. They're really good, and and you know, so you want to be as good as those guys. In so, terms of everything from skill to style to, you know, I always tell people in the studio, there's these things going on in your brain at the same time, and so that's what was always hard for me. I was a late bloomer as far as the studio went. I didn't know that there's the the click track, and you got to stay with it, and you got to kind of think about that. And there's also precise you got to be precise and keep those notes you can't be sloppy and then there's that third thing of oh yeah i have to be creative yeah. i have to play something that's interesting yeah and those three things are going on in your mind at the same time and you can't let any one of them down and then on top of that and that then that really uh accounts for about 50 percent of what they're looking for the other 50 percent is is are you a nice guy are you a fun guy do you yeah, are a you good, good hang are you a good, good hang, hang is what we call it. Because I've seen guys come in that just slayed it musically, yeah. and and they they weren't good hang. They were you know, and and you you see you see them for about six months and then they disappear. Yeah, you got to be a good guy, good conversation. And same thing hang. with a, with with a road gig, you know. Yeah. I mean, road gig is even more. The hang is even more. You're important. sitting on the bus for weeks and weeks with the same people, and yeah. you got to be a good dude. Yeah, and if you if you're a hothead and. And you don't have any patience for people, and you know, because because you're you're in each other's face on a bus, you right? Know? Yeah. So. Well, man, it was so good talking to you. Thank you for stopping by, and um, I wish the best of luck with you with your band and your touring and all that. And thank once you. this COVID thing gets. Thank you so much, and you're still playing too, right? Yeah, still playing with Lone Star, still doing the thing. We're still we're about to work up a new show for our next 20, 2022 show that we have coming uh, tour that we year that we have coming up. So we're fixing to work up new songs and new, you know, new stuff. Nice. So it's all good. Well, I've been uh, working with Dean in the studio forever. I mean, he was one of the first guys that would hire me when I first started doing sessions. And uh, Oh, that's right, because Dean, he had a little studio down there on Music Row, and he would do demos and things. He had he had a studio in his big old house in Hermitage for a while. That's that's where I remember going. And then... Uh, the basement one? The one with the basement? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I remember that... Uh, that was back in ADAT days. <laughs> oh, right, the ADATs, yeah. Had the three ADATs that had to sync up to each other and all that yeah. stuff. I bet he still probably has those. Oh. Yeah, I think I've talked to him. He said, yeah, I've still got my ADATs. Yeah. But yeah anyway. Imagine having all that time back where you hear uh, waiting for ADATs to lock up. Yeah, or rewind. You have to hit the rewind button. In the, like, well, how does this song go? I don't know. I forgot. Cool, man. Well, 
thank you so much again, and uh, we will see you out on the road somewhere. Yeah. Hopefully with Alabama. Hope so. Awesome. Hope so. Yeah. Take me down. <laughs> All right, this has been Keach Rainwater and Tommy Harden here. See you guys next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>